You're listening to Cross the Line 1524, the common man's podcast. But I came here for just one drink. It's Cross the Line 1524. Join us at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy with a glass of bourbon, table 12, as guys sit around and discuss distilleries, common day events, or whatever comes to the bar top. That's right. Cross the line, 1524. You never even call me by my name. All right, welcome to Cross the Line, 1524. I'm Alan Stanger with... Dwayne Bischoff. Jeff Montag. Mike Gardner. Scotty Bourbon. And you just heard a very special guest straight from... I was going to say Nashville, Tennessee, but we're going to say Danville, Kentucky. Straight out of Danville. Dr. Patrick Heist. How you doing this morning, Patrick? Great. Glad to be here. So it is uh, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and as most of you have figured out, when we're in bourbon country and it's 10 o'clock, we have something in front of us in liquid form. So talk about what's in front of us right now. Yeah, this is our, uh, it's a very new release. This is our eight-year high-rye bourbon. So, you know, we just came out with our first high rye bourbon probably three, four years ago uh, and released it as Bottle and Bond. And this is the first age-stated uh, expression of that high rye bourbon. So, again, it's age-stated at eight years. So this would have been made on our pot still. Currently, we're running column stills here now. So um, that, that's something kind of unique. We were running extremely small batches when we started uh, or, or when we would have made this. That would have been like a 400-gallon batch in terms of fermentation. So back then, it was one batch made one barrel. So uh, And it would have took us about 10 hours to make a barrel of bourbon back then. We can do probably 110 barrels in that same amount of time right wow. now. Wow. So different let's, equipment. let's talk a little bit of the history. I don't, did we even say Wilderness Trail? We're at Wilderness no. Trail. Uh, so I want, I want to start from the beginning. So. Mm-hmm. You weren't always at a distillery here. Mm-hmm. You have a company called Firm Solutions. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you got into the bourbon industry. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1972, my parents were in love, and they had a child. <laughs> Maybe so, uh, not quite that far uh, back. No. <laughs> Let me fast forward about uh, 25 years. So my background is in microbiology. Um, I've got a bachelor's degree in microbiology. I also have a master's and a Ph.D. in plant pathology. So plant pathology is the study of microorganisms that cause diseases on plants. So if you're growing tobacco, if you're growing apple trees, or if you are you know, have a greenhouse selling ornamentals or whatever, there can be various microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, viruses, nematodes that can affect your plants. And so, um, again, which is very centered around microbiology. I mean, we're talking about microorganisms. So I got my PhD in plant pathology and had been working for agricultural extension at the University of Kentucky, helping farmers with their issues related to diseases of field crops. When I got my PhD, 
I took a job, or landed a job rather, kind of miraculously as a medical microbiology professor at a medical school in eastern Kentucky at Pikeville College. It's osteopathic medical school. So I was a medical microbiology professor for uh, seven years over there. And during that time, I uh, started consulting for a company that sold yeast and fermentation products to fuel alcohol distilleries. And a lot of people don't realize it, but there is about 12 to 15 billion gallons of fuel alcohol produced here in the United States annually. And that's about 15 to 20 percent of all the fuel that's used domestically. So if you go to the pumps, the regular versus mid-grade versus super, it's just got different levels of ethanol, ethanol added to it. That's it. what boosts the octane. So that's a huge industry. And whenever you're a yeast supplier, you want to go after the customers that have the biggest fermenters. And those guys have fermenters anywhere from 800,000 gallons to over a million gallons apiece. The largest fermenters you'd ever see here in the state of Kentucky at, at the largest bourbon producers are going to be 150,000 gallons. So uh, I started consulting for uh, the company and just, you know, kind of through my own soul searching and different things, um, thought it would be a good idea to go on my own and start my own company. And so Shane, my business partner, me and him played in a rock band here in Danville, like back in, you know, probably seven years before I ever got the job as a professor. When I moved away to become a professor, that's kind of the end of the band. But Shane and I stayed in touch. He's a mechanical engineer. He was involved with some a venture capital companies, so he would, you know, they would buy distressed companies, and he was the operations guy that would go in and, you know, assess the, you know, who needs to stay, who needs to go, how do we get this thing profitable so we can flip it and make money. So he was integral in, you know, raising our capital to start our first business, which was Firm Solutions, and, uh, you know. That company currently does, we do business with, I would estimate, about 600 different distilleries and breweries, hard seltzer producers, uh, producers of non-alcoholic fermented beverages like kombucha and kefir. Somebody told me yesterday it's kefir, so get, <laughs> get that straight. Get so, your French right now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, you know, we were running Firm Solutions probably, you know, six, seven years, and about 2011, 2012... You know, the thing about being a yeast provider is the yeast gets the blame for every problem that a distillery has. So the yeast provider is the one to get the phone call. If the fermenter's not bubbling right, the phone's ringing. That's your right. Fault. It's got to be. Well, and so for that reason, and over the years when we get these phone calls, you got to go in and figure out what's really going on because 99% of the time it's not the yeast. You got grain coming in, you got grain quality issues. You know, if it's got the right starch, it's got the right moisture content. Are you milling it properly in the cook process? Are we creating an environment to facilitate the enzymatic conversion of starch to fermentable sugars, which there's a lot of pH and temperature. We're adding malt that contains the enzymes. You may be supplementing with additional enzymes. You can get bacterial contamination in the fermenter. There's just a lot of different things that can cause issues that aren't related to the yeast. So over the years, we've kind of become the go-to company for when distilleries have, or breweries have issues, they call us, and then we 
have gotten experience in, I would estimate, over a thousand different distilleries, and nobody has yet to ever invite us over whenever things are running great. <laughs> so you come over and have, a, have a, drink. a glass of bourbon, you know. It's always, hey, there's a squirrel stuck in the recirculation line here. We need to figure out what's going on. So, you know, probably about 2011, 2012, and another thing, we do a lot of training for the big distilleries. You know, not only the big bourbon producers here in Kentucky, but I'm an adjunct professor at the James Beam Institute at the University of Kentucky. I teach at uh, Moonshine University in Louisville, so we do a lot of educational stuff for up-and-coming distillers as well as some of the most experienced people in the industry. So we had a background where we're fermentation experts. We're, we already know what hundreds of other distilleries are doing. We know a lot of the things they're doing wrong because we're helping them with their problems. We know a lot of things they're doing right. And, you know, here we were with a thriving company, making a little bit of money and getting phone calls from some of the most famous master distillers in the world. And it just kind of dawned on us, we need to have our own <laughs> distillery. <laughs> so we started Wilderness Trail back in 2012, started distilling in 2013, just a small operation, as I mentioned before, one barrel a day, three to four days a week. And then fast forward to today, we're a 220 barrel a day, seven days a week operation. We estimate based on our capacity, we're the 14th largest bourbon producer in the world. And we just became the 18th member of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Fantastic. Great. Absolutely wonderful. wonderful. Brings us up to date. That, yeah. So while he was bringing us up to date, I was sipping. Oh, this is yeah, so, me too. It's delicious. What I will say, is I, I acquired a taste for variety, and the rye really pokes its head out. It does. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's very good. Very good. It's really opened up to just sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of good, just classic, you know, the caramel and yeah. the vanilla. Yep. Yep. This is really good. So you talked about Moonshine University. So two of us two here of actually us. are executive bourbon stewards. We went to oh, the okay. bourbon, cool. bourbon steward yep. course at Moonshine University. Yep. So it's amazing once you do that and you learn how to pick out the different flavors in a bourbon, yeah. uh, how much more enjoyable it is. Oh, yeah. And we're trying to pass that knowledge on to these guys who's just smell bourbon. I still, find, I still find it pretty enjoyable anyway. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was listening through some of your guys' podcasts over the last couple of days. I listened to one with Steve Bean. Yes. Yeah. I noticed we got a little bit of a, a little nod there. So yeah. they oh, mentioned yes. our involvement. Actually, with that. we were there yesterday as well. Okay. Uh, they released their 2022 uh, limited, limited edition. edition. Uh, so we went out to visit. We so, visit ended up sitting down there for a couple hours again. Yeah, and, and, and Stephen knew we were coming here, so he said, make sure you tell him, guys, I said hello. Okay. So And then, of yeah. course, as I told you, we were over at uh, Dant Crossing yep. staying over there. So they said, say hello. We sat down with Wally, Charles, and Lynn okay. yesterday afternoon, late afternoon. So, um, Yeah, they were in the class as well. Yeah, I, so don't about, it, I don't think Wally was, but I know Lynn. It's and, uh, it's great. One of the things that we've picked up on from the outside looking in is all the small, although after you've just stated, you're not so small anymore, <laughs> but the newer distilleries that aren't the big... Big brands. Big brands. Mm -hmm. They all kind of have each other's back, talk good about each other, and send them... Oh, yeah. um, every time we've been uh, to Limestone Branch or any or Dan Crossing, they'll send... There'll be folks there that go, well, where should we go next? 
and they'll either say here or yes. they'll say limestone yeah. or yeah. you know it's it's a it's a family absolutely and even the big guys you know everybody you know most everybody that's well everybody who's either on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail or the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Craft Tour are all members of the Kentucky Distillers Association so we have several you know several times a year we get together and sit around and you know talk about legislation relative to bourbon um, you know, just different things. You know, what are the we, we had? You know, the James Beam Institute at the University of Kentucky. So that's kind of a more of a research center for, you know, what are the issues that we're faced with this industry? We got black mold growing on the 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 barrel warehouses right. out here. We've got bacterial contamination in the fermenters. We've got different interests in growing in in different types of grains. You know, like even just most. Like one example would be most Kentucky bourbon producers use rye in their recipe, but we're one of the only distilleries here in the state that uses Kentucky grown rye. So just kind of even simple things like can we experiment with make, you know, hardly none of the barley that's used in the process is grown in Kentucky. And I think that's due to climate, climate and other right. things. So, <clears throat> you know, maybe there isn't anything that can be done, but having a background in agriculture, we were able to get around the rye problem by just investigating other varieties of rye that do grow well in this area. And so if you're getting rye, you know, if you look at sustainability, if I got to have my rye shipped from 500 miles away versus five miles away, it just, people talk about, I mean, there's a lot of talk about carbon credits and different right. things. And so when you, you talk about that, you can, you can look up on the internet how much CO2 emissions uh, result from a gallon of alcohol or from a bushel of grain production, but if I couple that with now I drive it 500 right. miles right. versus five, that blows everything out of the water. Right. Yeah, especially, especially when you look at the last couple of years and the disruption in transportation, Absolutely. just lack of drivers and that kind yeah. of stuff. So, yeah. well, so if you want to have a, a, a successful brand, if you're ever, you know, you get to the level, I mean, we grind about a million pounds of grain every five days here. So sourcing that grain and, you know, being able to get it reliable, if we were using some kind of heirloom blue corn hell we might be able to get a hundred bushels right. of that we need that every hour here right you right. know so it's uh it's there's a lot of dynamics yeah because you got to figure the costs i mean and that's just going to continue to grow too the, just mm. the transportation costs not even to buy the oh, grain yeah. but just transportation yeah, costs of it yeah yeah well in the barrels you know right where where's the wood produced versus where are the barrels being made versus where are the barrels being shipped whenever they're already made so we could get barrels from france if right. we wanted to be fancy, but that'd be a lot of freight, a lot of additional uh, energy, et cetera, et cetera. So where do you get your barrels from? We get them from Independent State, Independent State. for the most part, yeah. which is about 30 miles west of here. We just came through there. Actually, last we year went, we went through Independent State. That's yeah. fascinating to watch this being made. It is it's very a neat, interesting. It's a neat tour. Yeah. 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 Yep. But we and we talked about this you know, just yesterday with, uh, with the dance. Just, again, this distiller like community mm -hmm. the way you guys work together and not every industry does that and i think it you know you guys understand it behooves you to help each other mm -hmm. and and bring the whole industry up yeah you know and everybody everybody makes out better yeah with that. yeah the ones dog fighting are like distributors and right, kind of right. at the retail <laughs> level or then you get past retail and you got secondary market and that's really where the craziness of that this secondary industry. market is just nuts yeah, yeah. crazy yeah, crazy. Exactly. But yeah, it is. It is good to see all the distillers work together. And like Jeff was saying, I think the 
everybody realizes there's plenty of market for everybody. There's no need to fight to try to knock yeah, somebody yeah. down. Well, because, and again, at the production level, we're not sitting here battling for retail shelf space. Right, yeah. right. So we're kind of in a more happy environment, whereas right. the, like I said, the dog yeah, dog environment is where you get. I mean, the you got to be happy. You're smelling mash cooking all day long. <laughs> I can just yeah. not be. Oh yeah. Well, I spend a, a good bit of time here. I also travel quite a bit. We. Uh, have over the last three or four years been developing our business over in Europe. So I've been doing a little bit of work in like Sweden and Denmark, and I'm actually getting ready to head over to Germany here in uh, about a week for uh, over to Berlin. We've got nice. some business over there. We've been nice. in England and France, getting ready to be in France. So when I'm over there, a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of. Uh, so do you have a barrel pick program here as well? Yeah. Yeah, there you go, Mike. we do barrel picks all. Right, right, right. Right. I asked last, last right, year about there it. There we yeah. go. So, what, okay. speaking of the, the going to Europe and stuff, so do you see that market as being the the untapped market, or is it already? Um, well, I or mean, just getting getting your brand in there. Yeah, we're just kind of getting it. I mean, there's a big market over there in China and India and South America and Canada, but where you know where we're new, and I mean, you know, nine years ago we made 250 barrels a year. One year after that, we probably made 350, and then we made 700, and then we made 1,000, then we made 5,000. We're laying down like 35, 40,000 barrels this year for Wilderness Trail, and then make another 30 plus thousand for contract producers. Yeah, sourcing. Well, and right. I, again, I think the benefit of the bourbon industry is it's purely American, right? Okay. So the world market. They still have to if they're if they're going to have bourbon, it's a purely American. Sure. Well, same with Scotch. You know, look how many people right. over here drink Scotch. Sure. Right. You know, so we're just trying to get the same foot. Yeah, and really, that. bourbon. I uh, know we grew up with bourbon, so you know it's bourbon, but it's a young spirit compared to Scotch. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Scotch has been around for far longer than the United States has been around. So it's 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 just a it's an untapped market out there. Yeah, there's still so many people that I mean, I really have just been introduced more to bourbon in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, prior to that, I didn't really drink it that much. Now, it's kind of about all I drink. Um, it's an oddity to have a beer. Well, occasionally he, I have a water. Yeah, we, <laughs> he, he drinks... <laughs> we've, we've learned hydration, hydration is key, is so key we, to try to, we try to make yeah. sure we drink plenty of water. We've too. learned our lessons a little well, bit. Well, bourbon's about half water. Like, yeah. bottling bond would be yeah. half water. So if I just drink enough of it, I'm getting plenty of hydration. It's like half and half. Yeah, there you go. We'll have to remember that one. I like, mm -hmm. I like his thinking. Mm -hmm. so how many rickhouses do you have up here now? Um, I think we've got 13. So you're building any more right now? Yeah, we're just yeah. so across the street. Is that the same uh, one that was there last year that you could? We yeah, were here I think last it's year. Taller this year. Last year oh, okay. it was down because you were you didn't couldn't, couldn't get bolts get hardware for. It. Or oh something. well, that was probably four. Rick that was four. that oh. was this, yeah, yeah that was this other one right yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're the one that's under construction across the street is four out of a total of thirteen that are going across the street. So we've got uh, nine more going in behind the one that's under construction there right now. Nice. nice. Across the street, which right. will bring us up to a total of over 20. It's amazing. Just I mean, just, I like the construction thing. Just looking at that, how those are built. And oh, yeah. It's just a, the amount it's of a lumber neat. that goes in there. You know, we got people come. I, have, I was at one of the local restaurants here the other day having lunch, and the owner, he was like, man, I'm redoing my garage. He said, you wouldn't believe where lumber's at. You got big lumber, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it actually went down from where it was at. It's yeah. crazy, crazy. Yeah. Uh, so when we first, we first stumbled upon Wilderness Trail in 2019, 
So it happened to be we were coming down to do just hang out, and uh, we saw that there's this distillery called Wilderness Trail, and happened to be the Taste of Danville. Yeah, well, here so, at the same time. so to elaborate on that a little bit, so we were making the plans to come down. We were going to hit Maker's Mark. Um, I think it was four couples. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we're traveling down together. And uh, I worked at a, a flavoring company at the time, and my instrumentation guy does a lot of distilleries. And he wasn't, he, not that he was doing your distillery, but he knew I was a bourbon. I, I, I like bourbon. But he, he had a pretty good uh, relationship with Van Dome, the guys at Van Dome at, okay. uh, in Louisville. Van Dome. Yeah, is that how you pronounce it, Van mm-hmm. Dome? That's the way I do. And. Uh, <laughs> And he, he, and he and he told me he heard we were headed down that way. He said, "Hey," he said, uh, "he said my contacts at Vendome been talking about this this new distillery down there called Wilderness Trail." And says, "Man," he says, "they're telling me they're making some really good juice down there. They know what they're doing." So I looked it up, looked up Danville, and amazingly, the Saturday that we're coming down is the Taste of Danville, and guess where it's at? I think that's we released our uh, high rye, either we a got, rye whiskey or a high rye that bourbon. Was, yeah, it was we tw- have, the 2019 release day. Yeah, and uh, Yeah, so so a couple of us have uh, signed bottles from you and Shane for because we came in that day for the taste and got our sign. We weren't podcasting that or doing anything at that time, but uh, so yeah, so the to extend that story a little bit as we're getting ready to come down here i've got uh what i've decided was kind of unfortunate that i had an empty bottle signed bottle of wilderness trail on the top of my kitchen cabinet and i was like man i should have never opened that but at the time we couldn't get wilderness trail in indiana you had to open it so i was like you know i was probably doing some taste testing and i was like yeah we gotta open that so in preparation for coming down this time, uh, or I should say, you know, just within the last couple of weeks as I'm perusing that, my wife got a container of coffee out of the pantry, and while she's got the door open, I looked over, and I had another signed bottle, full <laughs> bottle of Wilderness Trail there from that signing. So, oh, so nice. that's up on my shelf now. Hidden so. back here. Yeah, it's just tucked, <laughs> tucked away. Little dusty. So, so we can get yeah. so we can get wilderness trail in Indiana now. So we're real happy. Yeah. We're real happy about that. Awesome. So Mr. Montag here though is a little disappointed. He ha- there's a product that you guys had that he loved. Oh yeah. Four grain. No. It's not it's, even. It was your harvest rum. It was the oh, harvest well, rum. Oh well, we still have it. It's called harvest rum. Run. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah, we still so, got it, but that's that's a very limited. We're probably, as I hate to say it, whatever we have left of that stuff when it's gone, it's probably gone. Well, see, yeah. and that's what we came to understand last year. So, so Mike here, him and his wife have uh, liquor stores. Okay. So as soon as you guys became available in Indiana, they knew my likes for Harvest Rum. Mm. They they attempted to get some mm. at their store, and they were like. I think they we only do that in Kentucky. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, we just don't have much of it. So they, they said you can only get it at the gift shop. Mm-hmm. So last year when we were down, we kind of raided the gift shop. So <laughs> Jeff might empty the gift shop again today. If yeah. there's any in there. Well, I'll tell you, what's in the gift shop now is very interesting. So that product, so Harvest Rum, what's called Harvest Run now, it's, it technically doesn't classify as a rum because it's not made from sugar cane. It's made from Kentucky uh, sweet sorghum. Kentucky-grown sweet sorghum molasses. 
So where we've been so focused on bourbon, you know, uh, a little bit of insight into how we make that. You know, if you look at and there's bottles sitting right up uh, there. I saw see. it. I saw it right off. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that actually, yeah, that actually says hard. Is that that's rum? The rum. That's rum. Yeah. That's okay. rum. Yeah. So um, that's incredibly dark, given it's only been in a barrel for fairly like a, a couple years, probably in a used barrel. Right. And one of the things that we did to make it more make it more bourbony and get more of the color from the barrel is we used we would start with a used bourbon barrel freshly dumped nowadays we use wilderness trail barrels but back when we first started making that we didn't have any barrels to dump so we were getting them from four roses and back then you know eight or nine years ago we could go down to cox creek and get four roses barrels that where they just had dumped an eight year or a nine year or whatever we'd bring those back here and within two hours of having dumped out that fine bourbon, we're putting Put, our rum, rum in, there. in there. But we were only putting 12 gallons in each barrel, 12 gallons to a 53 gallon barrel, so that it would absorb that little bit of volume of the rum would get all the benefit of all that bourbon in the barrel, it, yeah. and it would take on more color. So we leave them like that for one year, and then we consolidate them into full barrels. So probably about a year ago, we were out in the barrel warehouses kind of looking to free up some space for some new for some new make. And it was like, holy shit, man, there's like 60 barrels of where we put 12 gallons in each barrel and we forgot about it. And it's been there for three years. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, wow. Yeah. So we dumped all those together. And actually, I remember Shane brought me a sample of it. And, I was, and he was like, here, try this. And usually if I go to him or he comes to me and says, try this, it's either something's going to be God awful. There's a problem. We're getting ready to solve an issue for somebody. <laughs> or he's bringing me something really good. Like, oh, I'll taste this, you know. And I was hoping. It's kind of like when you get the jelly belly, you know. You don't know if it's going to be vomit flavored or <laughs> earwax yeah. or kiwi fruit, you know. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, uh, I, I got it and I tasted it. And I was, uh, and it was really good. And, and I, I told him, I said, is this like old bourbon? Like it tastes like 10 plus year old bourbon. And it was our damn rum. Just been sitting it's in sitting those barrels. Sitting there so long, it sucked Yeah. So the, the stuff we have in the gift shop is actually what we pulled out of those barrels, which would have been in the barrel for probably four or five years. Well, if you're looking to learn more about the bourbon country in probably the most unorthodox way you've ever heard it, you need to listen to Two Shots on a Barrel podcast. You can join the Bow Brothers, a couple of longtime goofy radio DJs from Kentucky, and learn more about what makes the heart of bourbon country so famous. You can listen to the Bow Brothers as they look to interview experts in the bourbon industry and other things that are truly unique to Central Kentucky, like wineries, craft breweries, caves, kayaking, you name it. It's Two Shots on a Barrel podcast with the Bow Brothers. You can find it on all of the major podcast platforms. Two shots on a barrel. You can learn more about Kentucky only the way the Bow Brothers can bring it on Two Shots on a Barrel podcast. Batesville Liquor Co. in Batesville, Indiana and Teppy Liquors in Brookville, Indiana have whatever you need to cool down during the hot summer days and summer nights. Just in is the old 55 barrel picks, which include the sweet corn mash bill. Jake Ireland's off-hours barrel pick is also in. Get both of these while you still can. Are you looking for ready-to-drink cocktails? 
they've got them. They also have your mixers and accessories to go with whatever cocktail you want to make. Hard Truth out of Nashville, Indiana just stopped in and dropped off the two barrels that Batesville Liquor Co. selected. We tasted it, and it's some great stuff. Guess what? Our friends at Logsdale Distillery have finally made it to Indiana. Try the Monks Road bourbon and gin. It is now available. Did somebody say beer? Stock up on both domestic and imported beers. Now, if you're into a fine cigar, they have a walk-in humidor as well at Batesville Liquor Co. Check it out. Located at 315 Shopping Village in Batesville, Indiana, or Tebby Liquor on Main Street in Brookville. Let them know that the Cross the Line 1524 crew sent you. Gilman's Home Centers, with 14 locations and growing. You know what? It's the party time of the year. That's right. You might need some party rentals, and they've got them. They've got bouncy houses, tents, even slushy machines for those adult party-friendly drinks. You know what? Things are heating up, which means you need to start thinking about watering options for your lawn and garden. They've got it. And you know what? It may be too hot for you. They've got plenty of air conditioning units and fans just for you. Gilman Home Centers, with 14 locations in Indiana and Ohio. Oh, I guess where we're going after this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, that just reminded me. I need to stockpile a couple of cases of that myself. I've got a few cases of it at home. Like when we came out with our, fir- our first, uh, another interesting story, bourbon related, uh, with that rum. When we first produced the, the, we actually had bottled some as clear, and we were getting ready to start selling it. And Dave Shurick, who is, lives here locally, he used to be the general manager, master distiller for Woodford Reserve. Um, I actually just had lunch with him yesterday. He brought Lincoln Henderson by here. Lincoln Henderson is, you know, he's used to be with Brown Foreman. He uh, established Angel's Envy. If you look at Angel's Envy, Lincoln Henderson's name on the front. So Dave Shurick and Lincoln Henderson stopped by. This was at our other place where we were running the 200 gallon pot still, and we were all proud, you know, here, check us out, we just bottled our rum. And uh, they tasted it and they thought it was really good. But he was like, you know what? He said, you need to put this in a used bourbon barrel. And we never thought about that, really, because it was so sweet and it was more like, I mean, they do age rum in in used barrels, but we just didn't really think of that. And when he said it, we're like, well, how? Well, I remember we took all like 200 bottles that we had bottled and we dumped them all out, dumped them into a barrel, and we never released any of it as clear. We only released it as barrel aged. So our first harvest run that we came out with was probably only had been aged three to six months in a used barrel. So a yeah. little bit of history there. Yeah, he was addicted to it and went through withdrawal symptoms till we got some at the gift <laughs> shop last year. Uh, ran out and then uh, ran out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got so, some symptoms. Yeah, yeah, we got him stocked back up. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, that was definitely a lifesaver for us when we were on the bourbon trail craft tour, but we didn't have any didn't bourbon. Have bourbon yet. Yeah. Talking yeah. about a good way to get clobbered, yeah. you know. The end of the tour, it's like, oh, it's bad news. I don't have any bourbon. What? It's like, but I do have a vodka that's made from a bourbon mash bill. We make a vodka. It's called Blue Heron Vodka that's made from our weeded uh, bourbon mash bill. So we just take the distillate off the column, and rather than proof it down to put into the barrel, we're redistilling, re-distilling it as a vodka. It in the bottle. Yep. 
So that's kind of interesting. But yeah. that's kind of what we used to save the day. And then the rum actually had a little bit of a bourbony taste, and it was aged in used bourbon barrels. So at the end of the tour, we at least had something that people could yeah. taste. So that's, that's one of the uh, challenges for a new distillery, yeah. a bourbon distillery. Obviously, you don't have bourbon right away, so you have choices of doing sort of like what you did, or you can source from somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so there's different options out there. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we waited. Uh, our first release was bottled in bonds, so we didn't source and we didn't release anything till it was at least. And actually, our first release it was probably closer to five and a half years when we released our first uh, bottled yeah. in bond. Yeah, well, I think you're better off waiting. We've we've done a couple where distillers had released it earlier, yeah. just trying to get something out. And it leaves a bad taste in your well, mouth for not wanting yeah, to try it again yeah. when well, it is aged. You only got one chance to make a first impression. Right, exactly. And, and if you're trying to pass something off that you know really isn't that great, and just because of the economics, you have to charge 70 or 80 yeah. bucks for right. it, it kind of rubs people the wrong way. Yeah, right. you know what happened to us? I'm not going to name... The price, right, but they even told us as they were pouring it. Well, now this is only two years; it's not so good. We know it's not ready yet, but you know, here, and, try it. And we're and like, <laughs> they they had done like you; they did vodkas and things ahead of time. Those were very good. Yeah, and then they poured this bourbon that was just not that good. And if we wouldn't have by chance uh, tasted it again several years later, we never never yeah, tried. We just, it. Our local town, Brookville, had a bourbon bourbon yeah, be festival. Be careful! You're gonna pare down. People are going to figure out how we're talk- who we're talking oh. about. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and the thing is, um, to anyone's defense who does release young stuff, young stuff just doesn't taste good. Right. And, yeah. and whenever we were kind of, you know, when we made our first barrel, you know, I mean, day one, we're drilling into it. I'll see what's got. You know, day two, it's right. like it's twice as old as it was yesterday. Right. Let's try it again. <laughs> so, you know, one month, six months, a year, yeah. year and a half, two years, and it's just like, damn, it just keeps tasting like shit. So what's going on here? And luckily for us, where we've got relationships with the other distillers, we can go to one of the other big distilleries and be like, do you guys mind if we come over there for a couple hours? Right. Can we taste some of your one-year-old and your right. two-year-old? They're like, yeah, come on over. And we're like, oh, theirs tastes like shit, too. We must be on the right track. <laughs> on the right track. So, yeah, that's uh, what a lot of people don't understand. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, you, you know, bourbons, there's there's three major things there. It's your mash bill, your yeast, and your aging in the barrel. Your that time. Flavor all that. And it takes time to get that good flavor. It really does. You can't rush that taste. I mean, it just it is what it is. And you, you, if you rush it, you get bad, bad taste. Yeah, and at the same time, the amount of capital that you have to invest going in and then to sit, have to sit and wait has oh, just yeah. got to be yeah, yeah. There's know, no, There's no secret why I dress like a homeless person. It's because <laughs> I don't have any money. Trust me. Uh, got a lot of whiskey, a lot, lot of whiskey, equipment, lot of yep, there you go. land. And one day you'll have one. One day. Yeah. And so, a big tax bill. So how much contract <laughs> distilling are you doing now for others? Um, well, uh, we kind of adjust that scale based on how much money we have available. If Shane and I make an extra couple hundred bucks, we're going to make another barrel. So, um, you know, it's real easy for every, a lot of our distillery customers ask us, you know, how do you guys know how much to make? It's like we count up our money, and we divide that by how much it costs to make a barrel, and that's how many barrels we're going to make. Right. So it's kind of partially that. Now, when we first started contract producing, we had just made this massive investment to be able to capture some of these contract distilling deals. So literally, we went from a one-barrel-a-day operation to being able to crank out 50,000 barrels within, like, 
two or three years. So, um, and trying to overcome that initial heavy investment of building that distillery and the land and then the first warehouses that we built, you know, um, we needed for as much of that initial production to be contract because that's get paid today to make it next week. Right. But we were mindful of, you know, we still want to make sure that every year we're making more and more wilderness. And so that was kind of our model is we can we can make as much contract as we want because there's, we can make a, every barrel of contract production here and make, you know, all kinds of money. Right. But that doesn't help our brand. You right. Know? And brand sales, when you look at the value of a distillery, it's branded sales versus contract production. I mean, the contract's right there. It's get paid today, make it next week. It's good money. But... Compare that to if we invest in those barrels and we buy them, and if we're just wanting to sell them as new make, if we can carry that debt for two years, we're into a whole nother realm of money on the wholesale market. Now take that to the bottle, and you're in a whole nother galaxy. Right. So we're we're just trying to kind of balance it out, and now that we're run, we've been running at this type of capacity now for three plus years. Now. We're, we're not 90% contract and 10% wilderness. We're like 60% wilderness, 40% contract, and we're eventually this whole place is just going to be 100% wilderness. That's our goal. And that's awesome. That's awesome. So it's, it's amazing how the whole contract distilling, uh, the persona that has changed over the last five, six, seven years, used to be there were brands out there that you had no idea that they weren't making their own stuff. Mm-hmm. They weren't forthcoming with it, didn't want to be. Well, not only did they not tell you where they're making, they're making a total different story that's not right, even anywhere right. near the So we facts. grew up outside of Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So MGP, obviously, mm-hmm. is there. So My great-grandfather used to work there when it was Seagram's. Seagram's. Mm-hmm. We have, I've got plenty of friends and family that worked there at Seagram's. So Seagram's is there. Shinley was behind it. Um, so there were big brand names, the bourbons out there that you never knew that was coming from Indiana, lots of them. And, um, now it's kind of shifted, you know, they'll say, either they'll say where they're coming from or they'll say distilled in Indiana on there. So you can put two and two together. Uh, some of the, the folks that we've interviewed lately, I mean, came right out and said, yeah, Pat and Shane are doing our, this is not our stuff. This is a source till we get our stuff doing and Pat and Shane's doing that for us. So it's, it's a, to me, it's a great change from what they were doing before. Yeah, just yeah. honesty. Honesty. Yeah, I mean, just, and, and nice thing, you guys are making a quality product. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're, they're getting top notch yeah. stuff to get that first impression. Yeah. You know, to get that brand, build their brand, and build their customer yeah, base, right. knowing that it's not that. Well, we'll sneak a two year out here, tastes like crap. Yeah, and trying to get eighty yeah. bucks for. That's uh, right. Well, you can still put two year out if you bought contract barrels, but you know. Right. Now, most of, we don't sell any aged. Like the only aged, like people call all the time wanting one year, two year, three year, but we don't sell anything. That's we just sell yeah, new. You sell it because we got. If it's if it's ours and it's aging, we want that to get into our bottles. Right. And we're in 42 states currently, and we're allocated in almost every state. So we've got a lot of runway to go before we get to a point of where we're not allocated anymore. Right, right. Oh, it's unbelievable. So did you grow up right here in this area? No, I was born in Covington, Kentucky. Oh, and, close um, to us, yeah. So, yeah, grew so we South Central Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, a few of us work in Cincinnati. Okay. So, you you're know. familiar with Finley Market? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. You ever oh, yeah, been to Heist Seafood and Poultry? 
That's my family's is restaurant. Is that right? Yeah, it's that a, right? they got a, a seafood and poultry place. My great grandfather used to run that. Yeah, I work oh, about wow. five minutes from Finley Market. Mm -hmm. yeah. I got a newspaper clipping where he got arrested, or got, and I don't know if he got arrested, but he got uh, charged with charging like extra 20 cents higher for a chicken yeah. more more than what the like they set the rate like during the war and stuff you know you can't charge you know say like he's trying to get a dollar 27 out of that damn thing you're not supposed to get more than dollar 15 you know it's like different times yeah definitely different right. my mom's side of the family actually had a machine shop it was called i think it was called flynn flynn machinery and it sat where riverfront stadium was oh really oh, wow. yeah i got an old picture yeah. of Flynn uh, machine shop and it was flooded. That's where they, but that's the so, site. So, but they, you didn't grow up in Covington? I was born there and I was I stayed there until I was about six or seven. Okay. And then my dad, he graduated from Sam and P. Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Okay. And he actually, when he was a teenager, he drove the bus to, uh, for like the, um, naughty kids down to Trooper Island Boys Camp oh, in really? Dale Hollow Lake. So he did, and he was a counselor there, and he always loved it down there. And he met a guy in law school who was from down there. So they like, hey, man, we want to move our families down there. So they started a law practice down there. That's why we ended up in, that's where I got my hillbilly axe. I used to yeah. talk like I was from Cincinnati, <laughs> yeah. Ohio. So, yeah. And now I'm like thinking totally hillbillified. <laughs> so I got to be honest with you. I, uh, I, li I listened to you on another podcast, and you referenced uh, Covington. Covington. You just said Covington. And I thought, he doesn't sound, it must be another Covington, Kentucky. Well, <laughs> Can't be the same one. Because <laughs> yeah. well, the people to. that grow up in Covington, Kentucky, sound like they're from Cincinnati. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, My so grandma you kinda, used to say you, Cincinnati. There's those kind of Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. She's called donkeys, donkeys. <laughs> so, so, in Indiana, we call them paper. <laughs> God bless your soul. So you truly grew up in the hills and hollers of Kentucky. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Down south central Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. And then moving over to eastern Kentucky for the medical school thing, even though I was a professor, that's where the Hatfields and the McCoys are oh, from yeah. over there. Yeah. So that's a whole other level of... Uh, you know, backwoods over there. <laughs> but I had a good time, though, and learned a lot, and, and actually learned a lot about moonshining over there. Yeah. You know, they're, they're big time into it over there. And still are. No pun intended, still. Yeah. <laughs> Saying yeah. it might be still, still some moonshine going on in places. Yes. Yeah. yeah, every once in a while it happens. Yeah. So you guys were talking to Steve Beam about our little yeast jug project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There. yeah, that was really cool. I mean, who can go to the local museum and just say, hey, can I borrow my family's uh, artifact yeah. here? And then I'll bring it right back. Yeah, sure. You know, we had that thing sitting in our lab for like three or four weeks. It's really interesting. We did a bunch of tests uh, using that thing while we had it. Um, and and actually that sort of led to us doing a work for other people on yeast jugs you yeah. know if you go to like antique stores you'll see a lamp and it's like what the heck's the base of that lamp and it's like an old yeast jug we had uh, we've actually had people bring in lamps that were yeast jugs oh, wow. and we took a lamp apart and try to get in there and that in that case what we were able to do it was such an old vessel that there wasn't anything alive in it but we were able to get residues out of there that had DNA. So we were able to extract DNA, generate nucleotide sequences, and, and match up 
a strain in our collection to the DNA sequences that we got from their family yeast jug. So you may talk <laughs> like a hillbilly, but we're true hillbillies, and that just went over everybody's head. <laughs> well, That's why I'm just sitting there going, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yeah. about everybody else in Kentucky, but whenever we need to uh, get down to the nitty-gritty, we'll do polymerase chain reaction, extract DNA, generate nucleotide <laughs> sequence, use bioinformatics. Sort of like it's like Jurassic Park, just yeah. for yeast. Yeah. yeah. Chuck Cowdery actually wrote an article called Jurassic Yeast, and, and it go. was about yeah. that, uh, what we did for Steve over there. That's and, uh, I mean, that that whole side of what you do is, is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. yeah it, it, it's more like forensics, you know, yeah. what you're yeah. looking for. We have this enormous yeast collection. We've probably got about 10,000 different strains, and uh, a lot of those are yeast that we cultured from fermentations at distilleries and breweries, but they're the yeast that weren't supposed to be there. So you got the yeast that you're intentionally putting in there, but in some contaminating situations, you'll have additional yeast that somehow made their way in as contaminants. And the same thing with bacteria. And that's one of the areas of expertise that we specialize in for our customers. So, you know, if you go on a tour, uh, on Kentucky Bourbon Trail tour, they talk about the grain, they talk about the water, talk about the yeast, the barrels, the climate, all that kind of stuff. And they might mention and we have our own set of house bugs here, you know, or something generic like that. And it's like, oh, what, what kind of house bugs? I don't know. I reckon I, there's house bugs, you know. It's like if I was running a $15 billion company, I'd probably want to know more than I reckon there's house right. bugs in here. So we take the mash and we actually culture those organisms. That's one of the services that we provide for distilleries. So out of our 120,000 different organisms that we have, cultured and cryogenically stored in our laboratory, about 100,000 of those are bacteria and about 10 to 15,000 are yeast. And those were cultured from distilleries all over the world. So if you really want to crack the code on flavor, the grain, the yeast, the water, all that's important, but you really want to take a look at all the ingredients that are in there that aren't on the recipe card. The so we have those over here. So again, other distilleries, whenever they employ us to give them this information, we give them that information, they learn from it, but we have information from everybody because we do the work, that same work for hundreds. So we're right. one of the only spots that has not only our own data from our own distillery, but we can compare it to data from hundreds of other distilleries over decades now. I mean, we've got some distilleries that we've been working with for almost 20 years now. We might have 2,000 organisms just from their facility, you know, from 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, and so you can see how these microbial communities change over time. And that's just sort of a really untapped area of flavor development. I mean, when we know that we have a contaminated fermenter, we're going to go in and culture the contaminants and we're going to store those. Four or five years later, when we're tasting that whiskey, you can kind of pinpoint, you know, vanillin. It comes from the barrel. There's other things that come from the yeast. There's some things that come from the fermentation process. But there are some notes that you just can't pinpoint it to, and that's where we then look to those contaminating organisms. And we've already pinned a few different very unique flavors on very specific bacteria. And if you wanted to artificially put those in there, you would just find a way to incorporate that contaminating organism. So it kind of takes it beyond 51% corn, right. limestone water. Right. You know, a lot of people around here, they talk about the calcium in the water. It's what makes the horse's bones strong, and that's what makes the yeast work so good. 
water's clear for a reason because there ain't hardly nothing in it. There you and go. And if you say it's high in calcium, that's fine, but it ain't got more calcium than corn's got in it. So, you know, you take fresh water versus what it, the nutritional composition after you put all the grains in it. Now, the, what's in the water, it's just the liquid holding it all together, right. really. You know? So you, you talk about this stuff. Now, have you ever went and have you ever found a batch that went, wow, this is like really special? You go back and look at your data and go, well, this was this in it, and then the try to duplicate yeah, yeah, that? absolutely. We sell bacteria to distilleries. That they like it's sort of like art. I mean, you guys are familiar with sweet mash versus sour yes, mash? Sure. We do all sweet mash here. We're starting with all fresh water in our mashing process. Sour mash producers, about 20 to 30 percent of their water for mashing is going to be recycled liquid from a previous distillation. It acidifies their mash. Well, another way of doing that, if you have a bacteria of interest, you could just grow up a small little vessel of like have some mash. Put that organism in there, let it grow to its heart's content, produce the chemicals, which most of the time is going to be an organic acid, like lactic acid, acetic acid. Let it produce what it's going to produce, but I'm not going to turn it loose in my fermenter with the yeast. Let it do its thing here, then I steam this, I kill the bacteria, and I dump it in my firm instead of using back set. It's kind of like right. I'm still acidifying. I'm kind of doing more of a controlled sour mash but i'm using a specific organism and you can really get tricky you could use five different organisms you know you could you could make five different batches of something and put a little a tenth of this 20 percent of this 50 percent of this you know what i mean you could really get crafty with trying to uh just kind of uh craft the flavors you right know? And, and the barrel producers are doing that right now with very I was over at Independent Stave and Andrew Weebrink, he's a wealth of knowledge if you guys ever uh, want to do a really kick-ass podcast on somebody that knows a lot about barrels. But he was Next over trip. there, yep. he was over there taking staves and running them across, I think it was uh, near-infrared uh, sensors. And he could gauge like how much vanillin or how what the potential of that stave had to produce the chemicals that would make a cherry bomb or to make a vanilla or make, and then oh. so this is a cherry stave, all right, it goes in the cherry pile. This is a vanilla stave, it goes in the vanilla pile. This is a banana stave, it goes in the banana pile. And then you can mix and match all these staves, or if I want a vanilla Strong explosion, vanilla. I might do half of them or all of them with those vanilla staves. So that's some like new technology sort wow. of, so each component <laughs> of this, it's just like we do our own thing with the bacteria and all that kind of stuff. Independent Stave and other barrel companies are doing their thing. It's just, if people right. think that they were making better whiskey 20, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, they're dead ass wrong. Right. Then we're making the best whiskey ever has been made in the history of mankind. So with regard to the industry, is there another library like you have for those bacterium and stuff um, like that? Not that Anywhere? I know of. That's, that uh, yeah, that's just, yeah. that's my Most people study them in kind of a fleeting way. Like, I want to know, like, I want to know if I got bacteria, because if I do, I need to make sure the operators do a better job of cleaning. And so a lot of times when we do that analysis, the only thing that the customer does with that information is figure out, oh, we're, we got problems in fermenters 2, 7, 14, and 32. So we got, maybe, maybe our cleaning equipment is broken in those fermenters. You know, if you've got closed top fermenters with like spray apparatus that are cleaning, yeah. maybe your spray balls are laying in the bottom of the fermenter. So we use that and they might not take any more past that, but we're actually not only interested in, okay, this batch was contaminated, but what organisms were in there 
and, and save those organisms because we don't have another chance to recover those Together. when we're already pulling the distillate out of right. the barrel four or five years later. And then what was the result of that? That's right. That's, that's, yep. that's, that's pretty that's amazing. amazing stuff. I mean, that's the part of it nobody yep. Well, and another kind of crazy thing, and I, was, I just had a, a meeting yesterday with a big equity group out of uh, California that's wanting to commercialize it. But all the bacteria that contaminate distilleries and breweries, like the whole reason that we started collecting them and saving them is because we develop products to kill them, kill them for fuel alcohol applications. But once we amassed this huge collection, we started getting more over onto distilled spirits. Then it's like, oh wow, these not only play into, they eat sugar that the yeast should be eating to make alcohol, so they're taken away from the yield, but they play into the flavor. Because these are organisms that produce organic acids. Organic acids condense with alcohols to form esters. You, anybody that drinks bourbon knows, has heard the term esters. Mm -hmm. That's what gives your fruity notes, your vanilla, the caramel, a lot of the classic flavors of bourbon. So those organisms are, are important for that reason. Well, in the process of all this, we also realize that those organisms are, are what they're selling now is probiotics for cattle, dogs, cats, horses, humans, like, you know, you eat it for gut health. Like, why do you drink kombucha and that kind of stuff? Because yeah. it, it acidifies the gut, it provides organisms that are gonna colonize. Those are exactly the same kind of bugs, you know? A lot of times you think about bacteria getting in a product you're gonna eat or drink, and you think about E. coli or salmonella right, right. or something that's gonna make you sick or make the food taste bad. But these are the kind of like the organisms that you would find in yogurt, sauerkraut, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So they're actually beneficial, and so now we're kind sure. of exploiting, could, do we have value there in pharmaceuticals? Right. So we're starting to, we don't have time to do all that. Right. We're sitting over there, so we're like reaching out and seeing if anybody else uh, wants to That's, take that on. Be, yeah, I just <laughs> yeah. Help and save the world one bacteria. Yeah, we got multi-billion dollar ideas falling out of trees around here. Yeah. <laughs> Catching whatever. I'll tell people all the time, so if you want to make a million dollars, come over here, I'll tell you five different ways that we just don't have time to capitalize on yeah. it all. There you go. So so how many employees do you guys have between the two businesses yeah, you have? Um, it's growing all the time, but I think our number is somewhere around, I think we got like 25 or 30 employees on the wilderness, or the firm solution side, and then probably 65 on the uh, wilderness trail side. Wow. Okay. That's great. It's, it's, it's great. Again, we talk about this too. It's just great for the community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what you guys farmers, do. You know, the farmers, you know, the grains. Yeah. The, the, the cattle farmers are giving away all that stillage. You know, we... Again, we're giving away 100,000 gallons of stillage every day here, seven days a week. Um, so a lot of feed for the cattle, a lot of uh, money for the farmers. And not to mention, we've got approximately $4 billion worth of bourbon resting on this property currently. Yeah. So the tax implications, the construction, you know, we're doing $15 million of construction every year. So there's, you know, people who, local construction companies right. that are benefiting from that. Right. And we try to employ local companies that way. Well, it saves us money. People are living in their homes and right. coming here to work rather than staying in hotels and, right. you know. So uh, we look at all those kind of things. Well, it helps build your community too. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, and bringing people here from the Bourbon Trail, we're starting to sure. see new hotels go up, bourbon-themed restaurants and bars, and and they're packed. You know, right. Well, again, we've 
a few times in driving around this weekend for us is just I mean we 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 in our simple you know Hoosier Billy minds see the op the additional opportunities that are just laying right there for for whether it be places to stay or places to mm -hmm. eat or whatever. Well, you guys were just at dance. Yeah, crossing. yeah, yeah. Got that great. I'm actually uh, they they've actually did you stay at the little house? We, we stayed at the homestead. At the homestead. Okay, yeah. at the homestead. Okay. Actually, we stayed there. Last year as well. Uh, last year. Yeah. yeah. One of these years, one of these trips is going to be we're going to rent the mansion when there's enough couples to rent oh, the mansion and stay yeah. down there. Yeah. Sweet. Now, yeah. I know that home is up for, uh, we're doing a, KDA's doing a benefit auction right now. Have you guys seen that for the Eastern yeah, Kentucky, for Eastern Kentucky flood, flood victims? victims. Yes. It's, it's over with on Sunday. So if you're going to get on, there's barrel picks and bottles. And uh, he's got that that place up for a one night stay one night there. Stay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was up to like six hundred, seven hundred bucks. Have, have you have you been up there and through that that homestead house? I've been up through. The, I haven't been there since. Uh... So anyway, so yeah, so yeah, so you started to say you you haven't been through the house since they redid it. Or? Well, I haven't been over there since that house was redone. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's just beautiful. it's yeah. uh, 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 you know I got hand it to them. They. Everything they do is just spot on and first I mean, class. First yeah. class. You go in that old house and it's just, it's just, it's homey, but man, it's just comfortable and everything, everything they've redone is yeah. just top notch. Yeah, we went over there. We met Wally over there like early on, like when everything was still dirt. Actually, that other company was still working in those big Kwanzaa yeah. huts, which I think they relocated that business. But we've been keeping an eye on them through social media, and yeah. I mean the amp uh, down yeah. there—it's just unbelievable. I play yeah. in a rock band still, yes. and I've been kind of—I don't hear from Wally as much because he knows every time he, I talk to him, I'm like, "Hey, Wally, <laughs> yeah, we've been a little opening <laughs> spot down been, there." You could have been there like that, an yeah. ACDC tribute band. Yeah, right? yeah I know, that could have been you guys yeah. playing your stuff, you know? I know. We're gonna wait till they get their distillery running. We'll. Uh, yeah. Tighten the, tighten the noose up a little yeah, bit. They're, they're, right, they're right on it now. <laughs> so talk about your, your music background and what you're doing music-wise. Yeah, so my background in music, I've always loved music. I, I'm very eclectic listener of music. My favorite style of music and growing up, probably the reason our barrel houses are black and I'm wearing a black t-shirt right now. Johnny Cash. Slayer. <laughs> um, yeah. Like different heavy metal. Yeah, metal. I like, heavy I like metal. speed metal, yeah. you know, heavy metal. But I like all kinds of different music. Nowadays, I listen to country and rock and all kinds of different stuff. The band that I play in, so Shane and I, we met playing in a rock band. That was called Fulcrum. The engineers won out on the uh, <laughs> tipping point of the yeah, universe yeah, there. Yeah. So the band I play in now is called Zellame. We're on Spotify and YouTube. If you, it's Z-E-L-L-A-M-A-Y. And some of it's actually got an exclamation point. If you, you, you got to put an exclamation point before it pops up. I don't know who the hell did that. But anyhow, there's, you'd see some of our songs. But we play kind of like, I would equate it to like Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, you know, that kind of stuff. Just okay. sort of like hmm. 90s, 90s rock. It's not too over the top heavy and stuff that, you know, stuff yeah. that you list to, you know, Guns N' Roses, Mr. Brownstone comes on. You're not going to be disappointed right, about right, that. Gotcha. Right, right, right. So, so you know, if can I put one of those songs on the podcast yeah, to close it out? Yeah, absolutely. Good deal. We'll do that. I just did a podcast called Rhythm on the Rocks, yeah. which is about music and yeah. bourbon. It was pretty cool. Cool. You don't mean to advertise other podcasts. That's all right. No, 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 it's pretty podcasts are kind of like the bourbon industry. We, we've got yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two yeah. shots on a barrel. We're friends with those guys. 
Yep. They, they're yep. a couple of good guys, too. So, yeah. We actually advertise on each other's podcast, which okay. is, you know, you get new new listeners. Yeah. So. Yep. So I know we've kept you, and I'm sure you got things to do today. So, what, what look look to the future? Tell us what the next ten years holds for Wilderness Trail. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we're tasting this eight year that we're putting out. You know, we've got a pretty aggressive strategy for age stated. You know, two years from now we'll have a ten year. Four years from now we'll have a twelve year. So, a lot of people worry. You know, are you guys just are you dumping all your barrels? It's you know, no, we got long-term plan. You know, we want to hit a 20-year at some point, and I mean, may not, we don't know what it's going to taste like till we get there. So that's kind of been the other interesting thing as we go along, you know, every couple of years, how does it change? I mean, we wondered if eight-year, because the six-year was so good. I, mean, I don't know how much of our six-year you guys drank, but it was Quite a big a difference from the normal bottle and bond. In the eight year, we were just wondering, like, is it going to be just as good as the six, or is it going to be better, or is it going to kind of start getting over-oaked? And we were super pleased with how that came out. So now we're like, damn, man, what's a 10-year going to yeah, be Yeah, that's like? delicious. And the mm-hmm. funny thing is, when we kind of started this, Jeff and I were not rye whiskey, rye bourbon drinkers. Okay. Now our palate has dramatically changed, and mm-hmm. that's good. I mean, that's real good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is. Good stuff. So we've got age-stated stuff. We've got, I mean, you know, a lot of people, where we're a scientific outfit, you know, they're like, well, how come you guys aren't doing more experiments? It's like, well, shit, we make three mash bills. I mean, really, if you look at one mash bill, what a distillery can do with one mash bill. When you talk about all the different proofs you can bottle it at, small batch, single barrel, barrel strength, bottle in bond. You can fit. And then you look at, like, skews. You know, once you decide on even one thing, like just this eight-year high rye bourbon. Well, I could have it in a 50-mil bottle, a half pint, pint, 750, 700 milliliter, 1.75, plastic, glass. It's like, hell, just that one thing. One, now, if I got an eight-year, a six-year, a bottle in bond. Multiply that. Hell, then, yeah. or a small batch, then you multiply all those skews. Next thing you know, you got 500 different skews to pick from. And again, multiply that by three separate mash bills. And we've got our hands full now. Back to experimentation. As scientists, we really want to get a good handle on the baseline of what we're making here before we start doing something different to it. Right. You know, why haven't we put anything in an old Rosa sherry cask? Because we really want to get a good handle on what's it taste like without doing that first. And right. then why are we even putting it in there? Right. You know, what are we trying to do? Not just do it and then see what happens. You know, and we've got some little things. We're doing uh, Macaulay, our barrel pit guy. He's, uh, I just saw him back there with some of his family. They're probably out here gorging on the best shit we got in the warehouse. <laughs> but anyhow, um, he's doing a project now with a um, northeastern um, maple syrup producer. So they basically took maple syrup and put it in a in an empty rye barrel of ours, let it set in there for a while, sold the maple syrup as like rye-flavored maple syrup, and then they sent that barrel back to us and we refilled it with a four or five-year rye. And now it's sitting at, we actually did multiple barrels, so we're doing some blending between those two barrels, and I tasted it just the other day. And it was just incredible. It had just enough of that maple syrup, just to where you knew that it would, that had that influence, but it wasn't like maple syrup city. Right. You know? 
So that's an example, and yeah. then, you know, you can imagine. So I don't know if you noticed when you mentioned maple syrup, his eyes might have lit up a little. <laughs> oh, he's, he's a maple, maple syrup. Well, that leads us to our, our next little thing here. So we got a little thank you gift oh, for being on man. here. So I'll pull out the first thing. So I own a maple syrup farm. Well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you can't make a barrel out of that, yeah, but you can yeah. make some darn good oh, pancakes. Man. Yeah, this episode then, <laughs> brought to you by Stanger Sugar Shack. There you go. And then uh, Jeff and Dwayne both have bees, so here's some of Jeff's uh, honey. Oh, cool. And along with maple syrup, I have a beef jerky business. Oh, so damn. I've got the only flavor. Seen that bag coming out. I didn't know what was in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, damn. So there's only one flavor that I could give to you today, and that would be the speakeasy bourbon flavor. Oh, so, man. That's awesome. That's a, well, I always say thank you for taking time out and sitting yeah. with us. Well, and, I sure appreciate it. And we've been educated, to say Absolutely. the least. Oh, yeah. We really appreciate so your really time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Really appreciate it. So, we, across the line, 1524, I'm Alan Stanger with... Dwayne Bischoff. Jeff Montag. Mike Gardner. Scotty Bourbon. With special guest, Pat Heist. <laughs> He's all over it. <laughs> we'll see y'all next time. Thanks. Oh, what a great time we had at Wilderness Trail Distillery. Uh, I want to apologize. We had a little uh, interference coming through on one of the channels. So, if you heard that... Sorry about that. We'll make sure it doesn't happen next time. But what a great time. Dr. Patrick Heist, uh, a little education there. What a great, great interview. Uh, a great time. So he talked about his band a little bit, Zella May. So we're going to close it out with Patrick Heist and Zella May.
been listening to Cross the Line 1524 with Dwayne Bischoff, Jeff Montag, Ruben Hunt, and Alan Stanger. Remember, you like us? Leave us a five-star rating and positive comment on whatever podcast app you're using. Hey, check out our webpage at www.crossthelline1524.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Check out Podcast 1524 on Twitter and Cross the Line 15 slash 24 on Facebook. Give me one more, you kick me out the door.